Hello, it's Thursday, January the 20th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... Why you shouldn't do dry January. Well, I'm glad to hear that, because I'm not doing dry January. On the Ukraine, Britain is going to send more military equipment to bolster the Ukraine defences against a potential Russian invasion. It's time to go back to the office, says the Prime Minister. So is he going to lead by example and make civil servants return to their desks? Because I can tell you for one, Whitehall is still deserted. But first, Boris Johnson and the so-called pork pie plot. Have they gone away? Are they a busted flush? I'm talking to one person who's seen many, many Tory leadership contests, the redoubtable Anne Widdicombe. So it seems Boris Johnson has seen off that plot to remove him for now, but his future could still depend on the outcome of the senior civil servant Sue Gray's report on so-called Partygate. She will publish her findings on Covid rule breaking in Downing Street, we think as early as next week. But what of Boris and the pork pie plot? Joining me now is the former Conservative Minister Anne Widdicombe, who was indeed a Brexit Party MEP for South West England. Anne Widdicombe, um, you've been involved in all sorts of um, uh, rumpuses with the Tory party. You were there, you were a Tory MP when yep. Mrs Thatcher was forced out. John Major uh, uh, said put up and shut up when John Redwood challenged him. Um, how does this one strike you with Boris? Well, the thing here is that this is largely uh, being brought about by new MPs. Now, usually when you have a proposed removal of the prime minister, it's the men in grey suits, it's the grandees, it's the men yeah. who've been there a long time uh, who actually are initiating things. Um, but these MPs, these brand new ones, have got no experience at all um, we can all quote, you can quote, I can quote, so many instances in which a government has been in the doldrums in midterm and has then gone on to win the next election. Um, but they haven't seen that. They don't understand it. They think that what's happening today is going to prevail uh, and hold constant for the next two years. And of course, that's an utter nonsense. These other issues, too. Um, at the moment, we know Russian troops are yes. mobilising on the Ukraine border, potentially 100,000. Britain has sent military equipment and, and staff to train the Ukrainians how to use the equipment. We are heading for, without a doubt, a cost of living crisis. Inflation yesterday has reached a 30 year high. How would it look to you or do you think it would look to ordinary voters if the Tory party then engages in a six to eight week uh, Tory leadership contest while all this is going on? Well, I think you're extremely optimistic. It could be a 10 to 12 week um, leadership contest. Uh, and that would mean that our NATO allies didn't know who the prime minister was going to be. The EU, with whom we're trying to negotiate over Northern Ireland, wouldn't know who the prime minister was going to be. Civil servants wouldn't know who the prime minister was going to be. Um, we've got record NHS waiting lists. We've got an economy that's got to recover after COVID. Um, and the idea that you just plunge the nation uh, into several months of instability is, is just unbelievable. I mean, as I said in, in my own ex Express piece this week, you know, it's about the country. It's not about Tory MPs. It's about the country. Um, and uh, we don't know what Sue Gray is going to say in her report, of course, and there's lots of leaks about the report, but I don't believe a word of them because I don't think she's the sort that leaks. No. Um, and equally, we don't know how many Tory MPs have or haven't put in letters to Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 22 committee, because maddeningly for a journalist, he doesn't leak either. <laughs> in your view, Anne Widdicombe, um, if, though, the Prime Minister 
is so, seen to have misled the Commons, or dare I say, even lied to the Commons about whether he knew that event was work or not. Is he finished? I don't think so. I think that what Boris would do in those circumstances would, would be to plead confusion, um, that he didn't think he was lying, um, that he understood. It's a bit like saying that he thought the party was a work event. It is yeah. just, just barely credible. Um, so uh, I think he would mount that sort of defence. And I think, quite honestly, that um, the party, I, I mean, I think the whips have very belatedly gone into action um, and people are now talking to each other at Westminster. And I think the party uh, will, will have a grip on it by that time. If it doesn't, well, you know, heaven help us. Uh, and some some of the new MPs, uh, one in particular, William Ragg, is complaining. He says he might even go to the police because he says the whips are trying to blackmail him. Do you think the police would really want to hear from Tory MPs who are saying, um, I've been told if I don't behave myself, I'm going to have lots of late night votes and um, I might not get as much money for my constituency fighting fund if I'm not loyal to the prime minister? It's hardly a police matter, is it? I think the police would tell him to go and get a life, and indeed that's what he should do. Hasn't done himself any good. Christian Wakeford hasn't done himself any good. Um, this is the one who defected. In the moment, and don't, I mean, David Davis hasn't done himself any good. If people act in the moment instead of taking a longer term view, um, they're very likely to get it wrong, and that's what we've seen. We've seen panic at Westminster amongst a whole new group of MPs. And I mean, you know, there are over 100 of them. A whole new group of MPs who've never seen this before and who think it's something unusual and demanding unusual action. It isn't, and it doesn't. And, and, and on that defection, um, Christian Wokeford, as he's now been dubbed by the <laughs> Tory MPs, uh, there is no doubt in my mind, because I talked to some ministers close to the Prime Minister yesterday, they said that that changed the whole dynamic. Tory MPs suddenly saw into the abyss and thought, we're helping the Labour Party here. So they've, they've stepped back and I've heard that potentially six or seven MPs who had put their names into the chairman of the 22 have removed them. Yes, um, I've heard similar. Whether it's true or not, none of us know, because Graham Brady will never leak. Absolutely not. Uh, uh, there's no, not a little bit of being porous in him. He's, he keeps everything under wraps. So unless the MPs themselves tell us, we're not actually going to know. Uh, but I have also heard that MPs were so appalled by what Wakeford did, suddenly realised what they were doing, that they were bringing aid and comfort to the Labour Party, looked at Keir Starmer across the House and thought, good heavens, do we really want him and Rayner? Um, and finally, and at last, um, got behind their general instead of mutinying, mutinying throughout the trenches. And on that last point, when you see all this going on, Anne Whittacombe, do you think, do you feel desperately nostalgic? Do you think, oh, why did I ever resign as an MP? Why did I stand down? Are you missing it terribly? <laughs> on the contrary, when I see <laughs> things like this, I think, why didn't I stand down earlier? <laughs> 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 That's Anne Whittacombe, who always tells it as it is. She was the Brexit Party MEP for South West England, was for many years a distinguished Tory party MP and minister. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. <laughs> 
Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says Britain is open to sending even more weaponry to Ukraine to try to help thwart a feared Russian invasion. Russia is continuing to amass troops on the border, now estimated at 127,000. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has flown to Kiev for crisis talks with Ukrainian officials and he's warned Russia could attack at very short notice. Joining me now is the Daily Mail's very own award-winning foreign correspondent who's in the Ukraine, Ian Birrell. Ian, it must be incredibly tense. What do you think will happen next? Well, the truth is no one has absolutely any idea outside the Kremlin, but certainly people are very nervous. It's very sinister what's happening. Um, I'm only about 50 kilometres from the border at the moment, and uh, everyone is very uncertain. You know, you talk to a business owner, they don't know what the future is. People don't know if they're going to have to be fighting or fleeing. or So there's, there's real nerves. But uh, I think the expectation from most people is that there won't be a full-scale invasion but there may be something malevolent, in which is Putin's style, of course, like in Crimea, where he sent in what were called the little green men, the unmarked special forces, or like in Donetsk and Luhansk, where he whipped up further and uh, has ended up with um, so-called self-styled people's republics. So I think there's just real nerves, basically. Um, the U.S. Um, are talking in um, Kiev, but Anthony Blinken, uh, Biden has talked tough. But there's no real uh, possibility, is there, Ian, that America would commit um, to troops going into the Ukraine to support the country against any sort of Russian military uh, attack? I think none whatsoever. I think Biden made that pretty clear last night in his conference. And I've not met anyone here who realistically expects anyone to come and help them. Um, it's very different. When I was here for the Crimea campaign and when Donetsk erupted in 2014, there was an expectation I kept hearing from people that Britain or America would come in and save them. Now I think people are much more realistic and understand the situation. There's perhaps a bit of anger, the fact that they haven't been allowed to join NATO, like Georgia, and have thus been uh, had, had aggression from Putin Whereas they look at the Baltic states and they see countries which perhaps have a slightly similar history to them in terms of their relationship with Russia, but um, are protected by being in NATO. Of course, if they did join NATO, that would be the red rag to President Putin, wouldn't it, uh, Ian? And that could well signal the military attack. Well, it certainly would be difficult. I mean, I, I, I do listen to a lot of the debate on countries like Ukraine and the one voice that always seems ignored is the, the voice of Ukraine and the people yeah. of Ukraine yeah. and it's always talked about in terms of what's good for NATO or the West or Russia but of course we should really be listening far more to the voices of the people in Ukraine uh, who just want to live in a peaceful I think uh, free society we Brit Britain has already sent in I think um, anti-tank weapons uh, and the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says they're open to sending more. And I think we've got military personnel in Ukraine in the form of trainers. Um, is there much more that Britain can realistically do, in your view, or should be doing? Well, certainly I think that's gone down very well um, and is seen as a very um, healthy and welcome sign of support and solidarity. So we shouldn't underestimate the symbolic importance of that, just in shoring up the mood here, because it does show people that they're not alone and that if there is something more nasty and conflict escalates that they will get some support. Canada's also talking of the same but I think the key is just to make it very very clear that if there is any aggression from Putin the response will be extraordinarily uh, 
strong in terms of whether it's sanctions or whatever can be done just to really cut off um, Putin and, and his allies. Indeed, that's Ian Birrell. He'll be there for us for the mail. He's our award-winning foreign correspondent in the Ukraine. So the Prime Minister has finally announced an end to working from home guidance and it's with immediate effect. The move's been welcomed by business groups, but some are already questioning the safety of the move at a time when the NHS remains under pressure and the unions, predictably, particularly in schools, are complaining about the decision of the government to say children no longer have to wear masks. How important is this, though, for the business community? Joining me now is Hannah Essex, who's co-executive director of the British Chamber of Commerce. Hannah, people were working from home. What difference is it going to make now if people make migrate back to their desks, migrate back to um, their offices? So the, the firms that were sort of hardest hit by the working from home guidance are those firms in town and city centres that rely on the footfall of office workers to keep going. So cafes, restaurants, um, bars and, and some shops as well. Um, they were the ones who really saw the impact. Lots of businesses have got office-based businesses have got well used to working from home over the course of the last two years and um, lots of them didn't hadn't actually fully returned to the office anyway when plan b was implemented and hybrid working has become quite normal so it wasn't those businesses that, that suffered although everyone is i'm sure keen to to see colleagues face to face it was more about those businesses that were you know in our town city centers who, who who rely on that custom so they would be really pleased about this. Yeah, and how big an impact was there on the part of the business community with that guidance which came in with Plan B? And, the, and I think it was the the Chief Medical Officer, Witty, didn't he? He said we should all limit our social interaction. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I think it started when news of the Omicron variant that, that, that had arrived in the UK, that's when then we started to see that kind of hitting consumer confidence, so people making their own choices about um, where they would be going, whether or not they would be socialising and so on and then then there was the comments by the chief medical officer and then of course the the sort of announcement about working from home so all of these things contributed to a sense that um that people shouldn't be going out and doing these things even though they're allowed to so it wasn't just about the working from home guidance it was a more of a sense that um everybody should needed to be cautious you saw lots of christmas parties cancelled um lots of socializing before christmas didn't happen because people were concerned um not just about getting ill, but about having to isolate and then having their Christmas plans written. So all kinds of factors at play, which meant that those businesses really suffered in that run-up, which is why we asked the Chancellor to provide more support in terms of um, local authority grants, which which he did in the end. Um, and and that has sort of helped gone, to some extent, helped those businesses um, to get through, although the money is taking a while to get out to them. What of the people um, who may just think, I'm never going to go back into the office or I'm never going to go back their place of work because they've managed, they found they can do it from home. Uh, it means they don't have to pay commuting costs. They don't have to get on a train or in a car or on a bus. Do you think there will be now a large p- proportion of people whose working day, working life has changed forever? Well, we, we asked businesses about this last year, so before um, sort of the latest round of restrictions. And most vast majority of businesses were saying we don't think we're you know we think hybrid working is the future so we've seen what can be done when people work from home and we are going to be looking at how we have a more hybrid way of working going forward we've seen um lots of businesses reporting that they haven't seen any sort of change in productivity if anything some people have found it more productive but it has actually been uh, beneficial for in terms of work-life balance and well-being and so on 
but there is that benefit to having people physically together in offices, particularly sort of idea generation, planning, brainstorming, yeah, that kind right. of thing is, is, is better done in person. But I think most businesses are embracing the opportunity around hybrid working and the opportunity to therefore increase their pool of talent because lots of firms are struggling to find the right people that they need right now to fill their vacancies to help their business to recover and to grow. Um, and having the opportunity to have people who don't have to be in a certain location every day, you can you can cast your net wider and you can find more people to contribute to your business. Do you think the government should lead by example and get people in Whitehall back behind their desk? Because I can tell you, I, I spent a lot of time around Westminster, Hannah. It, it's deserted. Well, I mean, we certainly, and we've heard that not just in Westminster, but in other parts of the country where, you know, local government offices have been mm. empty for the last couple of years. And it's frustrating for businesses that are trying to get people back into the office to see that that isn't also happening. Um, I think every organisation and every business needs to have that conversation with their employees and to figure out what's best for them. And that includes government. So they should be thinking about, you know, what is the best way to approach a sort of, even if it's a hybrid feature, um, what's the best thing for them to, so that they can achieve their objectives and, and, and get what they need out of their team and support their teams. And that's what businesses are doing. And we would expect government to be doing the same. I know you're getting back behind your desks at the British Chamber of Commerce, Hannah. Uh, yes, there are, there are people in today. Um, I will be back in again in, uh, in the next week or so. Um, of course, lots, those of us who have children in school are yeah. just waiting for the, the, the positive test to come through because it is still running rampant. And obviously for working parents, that is an additional complexity. Um, but uh, yes, I'm keen to get back in, in, into London and to see colleagues as soon as possible. Very good. That's Hannah Essex, who's co-executive director of the British Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining us. Time now for our regular city update with Ruth Sunderland, business editor at the Daily Mail. Ruth, um, uh, we've been talking and we've been writing endlessly, haven't we, in the mail about all the problems with Boris Johnson and port pie plots and all the rest of it. But the big problem, surely, facing this government uh, is going to be the cost of living crisis and those inflation figures. Inflation now at a 30 year high, 5.4 percent. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. You know, this is where... Um, politicians stand or fall, really, isn't it, at yeah. the sharp end of, of the economy. Um, so, as you say correctly, inflation, 5.4%, those were the figures that came out yesterday. Um, the Bank of England previously was claiming that these these inflation figures were a bit of a blip and that they were a temporary COVID effect. So, temporary has been going on a, a bit of an alarmingly long time. We've already seen interest rates go up in December to try and curb the inflationary pressures that are there in the economy. And we're probably likely to see another rise in interest rates before too long, quite possibly several before the end of, of this year. But the bad news is that the Bank of England, the governor, is now expecting inflation not to evaporate in a hurry. He's saying that the cost of living crisis is likely to last around 18 months. And there are some voices out there who think that it could easily go on for longer than that. So that really is not what people want to hear. Of course, pensioners often harder hit than the average because they spend more of their money on food and on mm. energy because, um, you know, they tend to be at home more. And energy bills are a big component of all of this. So it's really going to get a bit painful in the months ahead particularly from April when we see taxes and national insurance start to go up on top of that as well. So, you know, yeah, it's not, not good. April's the cruelest month. It's going to be particularly cruel, I think, this year. 
Yeah, and just finally, Ruth, we've, I've been talking earlier in the podcast about the possibility of some form of military intervention by Russia in the Ukraine. That will lead to an even higher spike in gas prices for sure, because we know Russia controls so much of the gas. Absolutely right. Um, so Russia uses energy as, as an, a form of um, foreign policy. It's, it's, it's a, a way that Russia strong arms other countries is through, it's because it's, it's got such a stranglehold on um, energy supply, um, not directly to us, but via Europe. So it does affect us. We, we're, we're not immune from that at all, as you say. So energy bills, there's no good news on that front I'm afraid and people are facing higher bills I think the only question is how much higher absolutely that's uh, Ruth Sunderland who's business editor at the Daily Mail thanks so much for joining us so if you've already failed dry January this year or like me not even tried this year here's some good news at least one expert says it's not a good idea in the first place Sandra Parker runs just the tonic coaching and she believes simply cutting out alcohol for a month is a pretty terrible idea if you're keen to truly change your drinking habits sandra joins me now so sandra um i do it most years and this year i just couldn't be bothered for no great health reason i just thought oh it's been so grim the last year i if i want to have a gin and tonic when i get home from work i'm gonna have one but you don't think they're very good in the first place these months off do you that's right. Um, exactly. That your experience sounds similar to mine. I think the problem with it is it focuses solely on us drinking. Um, it doesn't do anything to address why we're drinking, to address what happens after January, and it makes alcohol seem as this sort of forbidding, amazing retreat. And we can't wait until January's over until we can drink again. Yeah, and if people want to genuinely um, reduce their intake, Sandra, what what is your advice? Because, look, we know if we go off the booze for a month, that's going to be good in a way. It's going to be good for your waistline. It's going to be good for your liver. You're going to sleep better, all the rest of it. But if we're back then on it with a vengeance on February the 1st, it's just a temporary fix, isn't it? That's right. And and don't get me wrong, if, you know, I'm all in favour of people um, drinking less. I know myself how amazing that is. But what I would say is, you know, if you're really serious about it, you're looking for a long-term solution. And dry January only focuses on the behaviour itself, so having a drink or not having a drink. My recommendation is, and what works for me and what works for my clients, is examining the reasons why you want to have a drink. So, for example, are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you bored? Most of us are drinking to numb out, to like self-medicate because we've got uncomfortable emotions and we've learned that if we have a drink, we can switch that off. If you work with someone to get to the bottom of the reasons why you feel you need to drink and to work out how to change that and what you need instead, then you get to this magical place where you no longer, you change your mind basically and you no longer feel that you need to have alcohol and that way you don't feel deprived anymore. And that's really a long-term solution. I, I'm just looking at your own history, of course, Sandra. You said when you reached your 40s, you started to be doing much healthier stuff, yoga, uh, getting rid of processed foods, um, exercising regularly, and you would still do dry January. And, of course, then you'd plan your big night out on the 1st of February to mark the fact you could have a drink again, which undid a lot of the good work. But in 2018, you stopped drinking altogether. So how come? Was there a Paul on the road to Damascus moment? 
Uh, yeah, so what happened for me, like a lot of people, you know, I thought it was my fault. I tried to control it for ages. I thought life was too miserable without alcohol. And I just got to the point where I was just sick of it. And so I hunted around and I came across an amazing coach and I discovered that the way to change things was to stop relying on willpower and actually address the root cause. So that's that's what happened for me. And I should say that I had absolutely no intention of stopping drinking. And that might sound surprising, but my, my goal was to moderate. But if I'm honest, the longer I, I so I thought if I can have a break for a month then three months then three months became six months and I was still planning to have a break for a year but at that point I just realized I was a lot happier without alcohol and so I just thought you know what I'm going to carry on with this and you know it's so many so many big changes for me that I felt like I discovered this kind of secret superpower because I didn't desire alcohol anymore and I was a lot happier and that's why I decided to become a coach and help other people. Right. And and I think there's some suggestion, isn't there, as well, um, Sandra, that actually a lot of the people who sign up to Dry January in the first place are people who probably don't have a problem with alcohol, so find it quite easy. Yes, absolutely. I always found it a bit puzzling when I, I would read articles saying how successful Dry January was. And that was never my experience or the experience of other people I spoke to, whether like, you know, colleagues or now clients. And, you know, I investigated a bit further and something I realized was, you know, because it doesn't address the root cause, the only way something like that can work is if you don't have a huge desire to drink in the first place. And so that's somebody that really can take it or leave it anyway. Just finally, Sandra, if you drank a lot, how much would a lot have been when you were still drinking? To be honest, I was like a binge drinker, right. so I couldn't really tell you how much I had to drink on a Friday or a Saturday night, but I'm not, I'm eight stone, so I'm not a huge person, so it didn't take me too much to get drunk, but for me, it's less about how much someone's drinking, right, because I work with people that are drinking what some other people might think is not a lot, and then I through to people that are drinking, you know, like two bottles of wine a day, so what I would say is, it's a problem if you're not in control. And I know that I wasn't in control and I know it was a problem for me. Very interesting. <clears throat> That's Sandra Parker, who runs the Just the Tonic Coaching, uh, who says if, you haven't, if you're not doing dry January, probably no bad thing. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs> <laughs>